Quick, what year is this? Did you know that you really have two skins? The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. This is an egg. That's an atomic explosion. And this is you. Over here are the ones who'd rather talk than play. You know, I always thought Jared Leto had dead eyes, but then he became uh, more of a narcissist and undeservedly won an Academy Award and then started a cult. And now he has very dead eyes. I used to think that Jared Leto was really cute because of 30 Seconds to Mars, because he was this, like, whiny, sexy, dark-haired figure, but, um, yeah, no, he, now he, like, looks like he would smell really bad and, uh, just be a, an overall douchebag, and I, I don't like that. He looks like if, uh, Tilda Swinton became a casino pit boss. Hey, don't you dare talk about Tilda Swinton that way. Oh, I like Tilda Swinton. I'm just saying, for a supposedly charismatic male lead to look like Tilda Swinton, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to Long Story Short. I'm Chris. I'm here with my wife. The infamous, slightly, getting, getting on the point of very pregnant, sleepy bird, Leah. Yeah, a little sleepy bear pregunte with uh with our child. Our daughter is taking a lot out of me. So are Zola. so is Zoloft. <laughs> uh this is the eighth installment of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on twentieth century Romania. Episode titled Now That's What I Call Communism Part two <laughs> In Soviet-occupied Romania, there were three primary factions, all differing slightly in their adherence to Stalinist principles. The most liberal of these were the Secretariat Communists, helmed by Lucretiu Patrascanu, who had survived the Antonescu era by hiding in the countryside. The Secretariats were more or less comprised of the national peasants that chose to conform and had split from Iliomaniu to do so. Uh, they have nothing to do with a horse portrayed by a horse. I don't... Yeah. Secretariat. When Bojack Horseman uh, goes out to star in that biopic of Secretariat... Oh, I have I've never seen Bojack uh, I mean, I've seen, I've seen episodes I haven't watched. Uh, I'm sorry. I've heard it's a good show from you. Yeah. <laughs> The middle ground conservatives were the prison communists, helmed by Georgi Georgi Udej. The prison comms had spent the majority of the war in, uh, in prison, and they hardened the bulk of their ideology by bouncing it off one another. And by one another, I mean Georgi Georgi Udej. Do you think that Georgi Georgi Udej knows that Bill's going to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> Bill's gonna kill you. Lastly, there were the Muscovites, helmed by Anna Pauker. Mm, the Musketeers and the Anna Poker. Close. You learn and you get. You're on the verge. You're at ninety-nine percent. I'm so close. <laughs> 
Uh, Pauker and her brood studied Stalinism from the master, as they spent the majority of the war in self-exile in Moscow, and thus they were the most devoted Stalinists of all the Stalinists outside of East Germany and Western Russia. When the Red Army retook Bucharest, Anna Pauker was installed as Romania's Minister of Foreign Affairs under Stalin's direct order, replacing Georgi Tatarescu and holding the post for five years. Upon her appointment, she became the world's first female foreign minister. Ever. Oh, wow. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. And she was appointed by Stalin? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She must have had a great rack. Uh, I didn't think that could have been the reason, but not to sexualize a, a Soviet uh, historical figure, but uh, she... She wasn't the prettiest, but she had a bod. Yeah, butterface. Yeah, she just looked like an old Romanian woman. So, yeah, roughly. I want to see her face now. I want to see what she looks like. Anna... Google it. A-N-A. Detroit Brazil. No, um, <laughs> P-A-U-K-E-R. Anna Pauker. Oh, she does just look like an old Romanian woman. Yeah. Um... I can't find pictures of her body. It's oh, fair. She looks nice, though. She dresses well. She or did. she did, because she's dead now. That's true. For some reason, there's a picture of Angelina Jolie that popped up in the, in the, in the search, and if she looked like Angelina Jolie, then oh, I'd Oh, things would have been very like, different. Yeah. I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd have posters of Anna Pauker. <laughs> Uh, her staunch, unshakable Stalinism, Anna Pauker, not Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. Anna Pauker's staunch, unshakable Stalinism earned her the nickname the Iron Lady, which is funny because the Soviets later gave the same nickname to Margaret Thatcher, Britain's first female prime minister. I'm sorry, I'm still looking at Anna Pauker. I can't find her body anywhere. That's fine. Also, they really need to get creative with the names there. Why? Not all women are the same. Oh, you mean like Anna? Uh, like, well, no, because they give the same nickname to oh. Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. It's like, hey, why don't you get some creative nicknames up in the house, okay? Not that, like, we aren't all badasses, but, like, maybe I, maybe I want to be called Ice Cream Man. Wait, so you're asking the Soviets to get... Creative. creative yeah like uh they are not a pad of paper made of felt they're gonna be i was gonna say they're <laughs> gonna be like it's gonna it would turn out like that video yeah, they're the black bird version of don't hug me i'm scared no i think well i, think I don't want to be creative they i think that they would be the notepad in the sense that like oh they force you to do not yeah. creative color <laughs> like you cannot be like you can't you can't be i decide what creativity is exactly thank you it's like oh i drew a clown mm. clowns are not funny <sighs> we're gonna kill you now i don't like clowns <laughs> see and george and then we're back to georgie 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 Georgie. We're back to Georgie. Georgie doesn't like clowns because he reminds him of that time, and that's how he lost his arm. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it or read it. You know where that arm went? 
right up the pooper. I was going to say up his butt. Uh, even crazier than the Soviets' uh, double deal on that nickname, Anna Pauker wasn't really Anna Pauker. What? She was born Hannah Robinson. That's Rabinson, spelled not like Robinson, like, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. It's Rabinson. That sounds a little Jewish. Exactly. She <laughs> was born to a poor Jewish family in Moldavia. Holy uh, shit. And then they fucking appointed her as... Da -da -da. Okay, sorry. Back Skipped a few steps. Uh, in 1915, at the age of 22, she left the peasant life behind and moved to Bucharest, where she joined a socialist political faction and preached the good word of uh, Bolshevikism, uh, a.k.a. peasantry. Uh -huh. Good word. While hard at the sermon life, she met communist agitator Marcel Pauker, married him, and started going by Anna, because spelling Hannah takes twice as long. And she didn't have time for that. She's too busy sermonizing. I've heard um, a rumor that she just didn't like how to write the age. I didn't hear that because I just today learned about <laughs> Anna Pauker. <laughs> uh, her new husband was also a fan of pseudonyms going by Pui. <laughs> what the fuck? Priu. Bergazul. Loxamin. Steppen. Paul Weiss, and Hermann Guggenheim. What? Yeah. The, how the hell do you even, like, keep track of half of those? Uh, Loxamin sounds like something you get to cure, like, uh, psoriasis or something. Yeah. Uh, Pui, that's just good. Well, yeah. It's spelled P-U-I-U, -U, but, P -U you know, I that's some Pui shit. Mmm. What about a, that was a bergamot? Bergazool. That just makes me think of Bagul. Yeah. Like a big old shadow man wearing a nice old suit. That's a little 150 years too old. Uh, big sloppy wet Samara from the ring hair dripping Samara. down his, down his uh, ghastly white face. Crinkle cut bitch looking up at me from under the, under the bottom of a pool. Get out of the pool. You can't breathe underwater. Do you think that his hair was wet or greasy? Oh, it's greasy. greasy. For yeah. sure. Yeah, you could light that on fire. Oh. Uh, Marcel Pauker introduced Anna to the thrill of inciting riots. She, he was a good influence. Mom really approved. Yeah, Mom wasn't around, though. Oh. Mom was never around. Uh, and by 1923, they were both arrested. Together. Good. Yeah. Oh, those who get arrested together stay together. Uh, take you for sickness and health and uh, going to prison. Uh, she had the option to choose exile over incarceration uh, while he was sentenced to 10 years hard labor because he's a boy. He, ha he, he doesn't get as many options. Mm. Girl, you get two options. Boy, you, you get one option. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> while he went off to, uh, dirty Coldsville to do, uh, hard pushy-push and, uh, swinging choppy, yeah, uh, good stuff, <laughs> uh, she chose exile and went to Paris. What? Uh, he escaped imprisonment in 1925 and fled to Moscow. Unaware that Marcel was there, Anna, too, relocated to Moscow in 1928 at the age of 35. 
to be educated at the International Lenin School, which taught the logistics and bureaucracy of the communist movement. Because they are very bureaucratic. They make up all the rules, but they also love having rules because it makes them feel like they're not just making it up. Uh, meanwhile, Marcel moved back to Romania, living in anonymity uh, underground, until he was arrested again as an instigator of the Giu Valley's minor strike in August 1929. After a thorough education in communist bureaucracy, Anna returned to Paris to do some communist bureaucracy. <laughs> And in 1935, she returned again to Romania, at which point she was shot in both legs and arrested. She was then sentenced to ten years in prison. Why? But she was sentenced to exile, so like... Hey, she came back. But was it exile forever? Yeah, exile. Oh. Well, that sucks. Yeah, I mean... You, you... were living it up in Paris. Yeah. Learning, like, oh, learning how to do, like, communist bookkeeping, and then, like, you go back home... And they shoot you in both of your calves, and then you're, like, crawling around on the ground like like Charles Xavier just took a side spill after trying to get out of the tub. Oh, and then they, uh, don't. <laughs> oh, don't do that. And then they're like, hey, I recognize you. You're that, uh, you're that, you, you're not supposed to be here. And then they just, <laughs> you're down to one option. You know, it's crazy that it had been ten fucking years and they still recognized her. Sign of good bookkeeping. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, also in 1935, Marcel Pauker escaped to prison again and fled to <laughs> Moscow. Again! again. Uh, he was welcomed into the Soviet circles and did some industrial work in southwestern Siberia at a factory in the Ural Mountains. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason or other, Marcel got caught up in the middle of Stalin's third purge, uh, the Great Purge, as Robert Conquest called it. And after a year of interrogation, he eventually caved to the torture and admitted to bullshit charges of espionage on behalf of Romania. Uh, Marcel then became a statistic, executed alongside 1.2 million other Soviet innocents. You know what could have saved him? Not going to fucking Moscow. Yeah, you know, the uh, thing about communism is... Uh, no, I have no idea. I don't know why it's appealing whatsoever. <laughs> well, I think the... You get sucked into a system that's going to turn you out into a big old meat cube. So he died. Yeah, uh, so 1.2 million. That's a, that's a pretty huge number. Uh, it's, it's a fifth of the amount of Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, but in the Soviet Union, this amounts to only 144th of the total population. Uh, it's only because of the widespread terror, unfounded arrests, forced confessions, witch hunt denunciations, bullshit imprisonments, and mass deportations to gulags that we perceive the Great Purge as having a higher death toll than it actually did. Oh, really? Yeah. It was bad, but as a sliver of the whole, it was a sliver. What about, um... It was just a really bad sliver. What about General Mao? Uh, we'll Did get he... to Mao Zedong uh, in another series. Yeah. That is long been written and just waiting. But uh, he, uh, his was worse. Okay. Because yeah. that's, uh, that's what I thought. We have the same birthday. 
Oh yeah, that's right. I was uh, I was gonna be a secret, but it won't be a secret. Um... Happy birthday to you, Chairman <laughs> Mao. Uh, ten times as many people died during the Third Purge as did during the Holodomor, the man-made famine orchestrated in Ukraine in 1932 to starve out the undesirables. But nobody talks about the Holodomor. Uh, because it's uh, got a dumb name, and it's not as flashy. You don't have big old sappy real gulags and big rooms with just a single chair and a desk facing another chair, and then someone yells at you with what do a. They do? Uh, and then they like force you to admit things, and they write it down, and then they have you come over and sign the piece of paper saying, "Oh, I did all these things," and then ship you away and like big yeah. old. What do they do? The Holodomor? Yeah. Um, just starve. That sounds really horrible. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, you know the Hunger Games? Oh. Think of it like, uh, uh, one of the districts did all the farm stuff. They did the corn and shit. Uh, but the government took all the corn and shit, and they gave it to the, what they determined were the important people. So... Your farmers make your your wheats and your corns, and then it's taken from you. And if they catch you stealing any of the wheat or corn to feed your family, uh, especially with a culture that praises those who snitch on thieves, uh, you would be uh, exiled or sent uh, to hard labor or just shot, depending on the severity of the crime and the mood of the uh uh, Kulakization enforcer of your general area. Damn. That's really messed up. Yeah. So, Holodomor is a shorthand for uh, Ukraine is great for growing wheat, but that doesn't mean we want to feed the people who grow the wheat. Uh, not to say that uh, the 1.2 million of the Great Purge is not a big number, it's a huge number. Uh, but in terms of those killed, the average Soviet was likely only acquainted with a murdered person. In Ukraine, circa 1933, there was a shriveled corpse on every street corner. Oh my god. You know, not literally, but to a figurative sense, yeah, like yeah. the percentage. Uh, so during the Great Purge, it's far more likely that the average Soviet knew somebody who went to prison rather than somebody who died. Though that isn't to suggest that death was the worst of the options. The gulags were horrible. I think I would take starvation over uh, spending a year in a gulag. Mm. Um, I don't know. I know the gulags were horrible, but I, I, starvation is no joke. Yeah, but if you... But I guess you... In a gulag, you're probably going to end up dead anyways. Yeah. So just skip all the pain. Uh, Anna Pauker fucking skated through the Third Purge. She was in prison in Romania during the whole thing. So in May 1941, she was sent to Moscow in a prisoner exchange, at which point she learned about the whole purge thing that had happened. For all I know, she came slinking into Moscow on her two bullet-wounded legs with a fresh bag of popcorn, looking at the piles of devastation and all the sorry faces like... Hey guys, what'd I miss? 
Honestly, I don't know why she continued to be such a staunch Stalinist after all this. She had options. She was educated. She knew she could be welcomed in other places. But she clung to it. Maybe she agreed with the purges. Maybe she didn't care. And she was only in it for the career climb. I don't know. But uh, when the Red Army retook Bucharest and Anna returned to Romania as the leader of the Muscovite faction, uh, she did so as Stalin's go-to figurehead. Stalin actually wanted Anna Pauker to be the general secretary of the Romanian Workers' Party, but she declined, saying she couldn't hold the position because she was, one, a woman, two, a Jew, and three, an intellectual. No, that... <laughs> I mean, she believed in the cause so much, she discounted herself on three reasons she should be treated as trash. And Stalin was just like, ah, Anna, oh, fine. That's you don't have to be in charge, I but can't believe I love you. somebody said no to Stalin and they didn't disappear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she suggested that the no-hope railway unionist, Georgi Georgi Udej, take the role instead, since he was a real peasant type. Uh, aka a real communist communist like how uh mf doom is or was your favorite rapper's favorite rapper georgie georgie dash is like <laughs> all the big communist boys they look over to that big communist boy he is a swell guy so uh georgie georgie dash took the helm and nikolai ceausescu became his number two his personal number two, though, as Anna Pauker was nevertheless the second most powerful person in Soviet Romania. Uh, Time magazine, on the cover of their September 20th issue, 1948, depicted her in the midst of vocal emphasis, eclipsed in profile by a golden sickle with the subheadline, For an old battle axe, a new edge. <laughs> The featured article, titled A Girl Who Hated Cream Puffs, referred to Anna Pauker as the most powerful woman alive. She hated cream puffs? Uh, I'm gonna imagine it had to... Time... I don't have a time subscription, so they wouldn't let me le read the whole article. But I'm gonna imagine it was uh, something to do with it being like an elitist, capitalist kind of purchase. Yeah. Because otherwise, why the fuck would anybody trust this woman? Don't look. No. Don't you said something think. about boobs, right? Yeah, but I looked at. I saw what I could find for her body, and she doesn't look like she has much going on for her. She's like, I mean, she, she just looks like a regular woman. It's not like she has like fucking. She's Jane no you. Mansfield. Oh, thanks. I did get complimented on my boobs a lot today at the gym. I'm happy for you. Thank you. It was Stephanie. She was really sweet. It was really nice of her. She said that she wants to get her breast augmentation, and she's like, can you come with me so that way I can show the plastic surgeon what I can get? Oh my god, that's, a, a, <laughs> that's very sweet. I was like, thank you. You're bigger now because of the pregnancy, but they were big before. Yeah, mine are big because of the pregnancy. Yeah. Oh gosh, guys. Chris's boobs are... I just can't get enough. I love them right now. In the immediate years after taking power, Anna Pauker was pivotal in the implementation of communist bureaucracy and logistics, including the collectivization of farms, the purges of former fascists, and the arrests of political enemies. 
She was, however, for all her Stalinism, changing colors. She began to see lesser enemies, uh, those on the new fringe who had maybe associated with or dabbled in other ideologies, as people who could be taught communism and welcomed into the state instead of merely punished by the state simply for having not been on board ahead of there being a board to be on board with. She released tens of thousands of those who she had arrested, including many soft fascists, on the condition that they renounce their own ideology and turn over any weapons that they had. She also allowed half a million new members to join the Communist Party, despite less than stellar background checks. Honestly, she started to do communism right by steering away from totalitarian, authoritarian Stalinism and towards the actual capital C communism that she learned at the International Lenin School. She even appealed to the judge presiding over Ilya Manu's 1947 trial, asking for lenience for the National Peasants' co-founder, uh, but to no avail. Mm. But she yeah, tried. What happened to him? Yeah. Me, me, me. <laughs> me, me. <laughs> Before 1947, as she later said, If a Soviet official told me something, it was the gospel for me. If they had told me that the USSR needed it, I would have done it. If they had told me to throw myself into the fire, I would have done it. After 1947, however, uh, as Stalin pressed his satellite states to join him in a fourth purge, Anna Pauker faded from fanaticism and turned to humanism, forgiveness, and mercy. When the half a million new communists she allowed into the party were slated for purging, she resisted and found a middle ground that leaned on interrogations with only a percentage to be killed. When Stalin commissioned the Danube to Black Sea Canal, she resisted the usage of forced labor. Uh, when Stalin asked for all liberal and pacifist Romanians, aka those who did not help the Soviet Union during World War II, uh, when he asked for them to be purged, Anna held out. When Lucrucio Patriscanu, leader of the Secretariat Communists, was arrested for having long ago been cozy with Iliomaniu, Anna delayed his execution for six years. Wow. At the dawn of the 1950s, she greenlit the low-key emigration of 100,000 Jews, who were slated to be purged, to the newly created nation of Israel, where they couldn't be touched. During... She's like Oscar Schindler. Yeah. She, oh uh, she really turned color. Like, yeah. it's incredible. I think that, uh... She tried a cream puff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, uh, while, like, you know, this l the safe transport of Jews wasn't, uh, was after her Time P time article, but a, a number of this other stuff seemed to have, uh... Already happened? Yeah, encouraged mm -hmm. Time to, uh, call her what they did. Well, that's why I was surprised, because you said that they wrote a Time article about her, and it didn't seem like it was... No, nah, from what I read in the thing. beginning, it was uh, uh, critical of her circumstance, but uh, positive of her decision-making. Wow. Um, during the summer of 1950, when she was in Moscow for breast cancer surgery, Georgiou Dej launched the collectivization of all Western Romanian farms 
which Anna condemned from abroad, and when she returned, she halted the process in the Banat watershed, allowing farmers there to continue privatized farming, a decision that, a year later, would inspire the forced resettlement of some 45,000 bourgeoisie, quote-unquote bourgeoisie, farmers to the sparse Barragan region. So stop, stop, she's doing all this stuff and Stalin isn't getting mad at her? Uh, well, here's the thing. For all these un-Stalinist actions, among others, Stalin relabeled Anna Pauker a peasantist and non-Marxist, and for turning her back on him, he ordered that she be purged, along with nearly 200,000 other uncommitted Stalinists. Yeah, I saw that coming. She was deposed from her role as Minister of Foreign Affairs on July 9th, 1952, and on February 18th, 1953, she was formally arrested and charged with aiding the subversive and espionage activities of the Israeli legation and of the Zionists, and for aiding the enemy, aka the United States, by way of this uh, international Zionism, quote-unquote, conspiracies are real aliens are basically we're just real, gonna keep aliens are real but we never went to the moon <laughs> i'm stalling we're just gonna keep fucking putting shit on a plate and <laughs> we're gonna keep putting shit on the plate uh the proof was in the documents she signed authorizing the emigration of a hundred thousand jews to israel <laughs> that's a crime she was interrogated and lightly tortured for two weeks until the death of Joseph Stalin on March 5th, 1953, at which point she was released under house arrest. Damn, that came at a good time. Yo, brow wipe. <laughs> uh, fun fact, Joseph Stalin... Uh, was a piece of shit? Yes. Uh, <laughs> he was such a temperamental ass that he would order the guards outside of his doors like, do not want to be disturbed when I close this door and say I'm going to bed. I don't want to be disturbed until I wake up and I come out. Doesn't matter what's going on. You don't bother me. So he has a fucking heart attack one night. And he he's lying on the ground making gurgling noises. Banging on the ground a bit. Making uh, big old thumpies. And uh, the guards outside are like... Sh -sh -sh Something some seems weird. Like, should we, like, go check on that? No, no, no. If we go... He, he said no disturbances. Do you, I don't want to get killed because you opened that goddamn door. So, uh... He gets discovered uh, later the next morning uh, soaked in his own urine and, uh... I believe... Not a coma, just unconscious. Uh, he dies a short while later uh, because uh, no one got to him in time. Because, because. of his own goddamn rule. <laughs> so, I th you know, it came a little late and it wasn't as gruesome as it should have been, but he, in his stupid authoritarianism and fear-mongering hastened his own demise yeah which is good that's yeah actually that's kind of hilarious the oh. irony of it and uh we can talk about the death of stalin another time not the movie it is a movie it's a um a comedy with a bunch of great actors like making fun of the events 
like a um, um, Monty Python. No. Uh, 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 uh. Steve Buscemi plays Nikita Khrushchev, and it's awesome. Steve Buscemi. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's dope. Um, the year prior, uh, Stalin had thought that the doctors were trying to poison and kill him, so he had all the good doctors in the immediate area, Moscow area. Uh, he called it the doctor's plot, and he had them all killed. Fucking so then idiot. when he's unconscious, the only doctors they can get are, like, old retired dudes and, like, really dumb shit students. So they, like, do their best, and they get him to come back in, like, a surge. He awakens, and he's like, oh, hey, what's it going on? Uh, he's not speaking, he's, but he's, like, you know, looking around, and everyone's like, oh, my God, you're actually alive. Shit, I can't take over. I was, I had all these plans to take over. I mean, yay, you're alive. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, he actually expires. And uh, then they blame the doctors again. Jesus Christ. Did they kill the doctors that worked on it? Uh, huh. I was going to ask, too, if they killed the guards that were supposed to be looking mm. after him. Cause... Mm. They may have. Oh, my God. Fucking. Yeah. Bad place to be born at a bad time in particular. Yeah. But I wasn't. That's what's important. La, la, da, da. And uh, you, dear reader, uh, dear listener, were also not born during then and there. So uh, just count your blessings. Or you could have been born um, around that time, during that time. And if so, thanks for listening. Um, but uh, long story short, <laughs> she said it, um, you didn't die. Yeah, if you're still, if you're listening to this right now, you're alive. So, count your chickens. Uh, when Anna Pauker was informed of Stalin's death, she burst into tears. What? To which her liberator said, Don't cry. If Stalin was still alive, you'd be dead. But she wept nonetheless. When Nikita Khrushchev took the throne as premier of the Soviet Union, he did the unbelievable and openly acknowledged the horrors that were perpetuated under Stalin. Uh, he renounced those old waves, and he condemned all that had been allowed in that hierarchy of fear. This was great overall for the Soviet Union, and Khrushchev gets a bad rap for being the red half of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but he was actually a pretty stellar guy compared to those who came before and after him. And I can, I'll definitely cover Khrushchev another time, because I think... His period of the Soviet Union is very compelling, especially his relationship with JFK. Uh, but uh, this secret speech that he gave in February 1956 suggested the possibility that old accusations could be erased, which meant that Anna Pauker could be reinstated not only into the Communist Party, but into power. Damn. Yeah. And that was bad news for Georgie Georgie Udej, the general secretary of the past decade, who had been a conforming Stalinist. Yeah. If the head honcho is saying, hey, we need to shake things up a bit, you know, we got some stiff old boys following the old rules, we need young blood. <laughs> Giorgio Giorgio Udez is looking around like, oh shit, I'm an old boy. So in March of that year, Anna was summoned to appear before a high-level party commission, 
which she presumed would be her reinstatement, right? But instead, she found herself under duress once again, being pressured into admitting guilt for invented crimes and gray area misdemeanors. She protested the whole ordeal, saying that this kind of bullshit doesn't fly anymore, and she was not at all intimidated. <laughs> a, a true Iron Lady moment. Uh, and so, instead of being arrested again, she was banished to her home and barred from all civil service. Uh, that was fine by her, honestly, as she found work with a local publishing house, translating French and German books into Romanian. Uh, three years later, however, her cancer came back. Terminal this time, having spread to her heart and lungs. She suffered a heart attack on June 3rd, 1960, and died. Her body was cremated, and instead of the Romanian communist anthem playing at the ceremony, as was customary for deceased party members, her children suggested Beethoven's Third Symphony. Oh, I love that. As historian Robert Levi put it, long the party's propagandists scapegoat as the source of all the horrors of the Stalinist period, and Apauker continues to be vilified in post-communist Romania as the party leader most culpable for the post-war years' repression. But the truth is that this perpetually contradictory figure, though a Stalinist herself, and one who played a key role in imposing communism on Romania, paradoxically presented an alternative to the rigid, harsh Stalinism that soon emblemished Romanian party life and left a hidden legacy as a persistent patron of Romania's peasantry within the communist hierarchy. The fall of Anna Pauker was a significant step in a process that precluded any reformist leadership from prevailing in Romania and fated its citizens to endure the extreme hardship that would culminate in the Ceausescu regime. No other communist leader, save for Joseph Broz Tito, has been shown to have resisted the Soviet-imposed line of peak Stalinism, as she did, whether on collectivization, the fight against the kulaks in bourgeoisie, the prosecution of Lucrecio Patroscanu, the purge of the liberal veterans, or the facilitation of mass Jewish immigration. For her record of ethical resistance, the Romanian Workers' Party continued to enforce their narrative that they had tried with their arrests and interrogations, that she was responsible for acts of subversion and crimes against humanity. The forced labor camps at the Danube to Black Sea Canal were pinned on her, as were the protesti experiments. Nicolae Ceausescu popularized the nickname of Stalin Kufusta for her, meaning Stalin with a skirt. Her portrait in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was removed when Ceausescu took office, and even today it is still not back up on the wall, though hardline Stalinist and Ceausescu stooges still grace that hall. Today. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <sighs> some shit never hey, some Yeah, some people don't read history books, because why do that when you're leading a country? <laughs> Especially one with a very troubled history. Christopher Scott? Yeah. What the fuck is all that? 
Oh, those are my nail clippings, which I've removed with my teeth and then left on the floor while I work. You need to vacuum. Um... That's disgusting. You know, um, that line from Taken with Liam Neeson? I don't know who you are, but I'll find you and I'll yeah. you. Uh, well, not to compare myself to Woody Allen, but, uh, I, I have a very particular ass. Uh, set in neuroses and uh, that includes uh, biting off my fingernails and uh, leaving them on the floor you're gonna vacuum the fucking floor yeah i'm gonna vacuum it with my mouth <laughs> you're gonna learn how to stop that before rosie's born Ooh, she gonna learn today no he gonna learn today she not gonna see her dad do that she gonna learn today When Anna Pauker was removed from office in the summer of 1952, First Secretary Georgi Odej and Prime Minister Petru Groza drafted a new constitution. I swear Romania has had more constitutions in its lifetime than I've had bowel movements in the past year. And this new constitution, replacing its four-year-old predecessor, introduced peak Stalinist ideology into the country's creed, declaring that the People's Democratic State is consistently carrying out the policy of enclosing and eliminating capitalist elements. Groza then stepped down as Prime Minister of Romania, instead becoming President of the Presidium, through which he could ratify said new constitution. Uh, and in his departure, he appointed Georgi Udej the new Prime Minister. Groza would remain president of the Presidium until January 7, 1958, when he died on the operating table at the age of 73. He was having an ulcer removed from his stomach. And I'll tell you what, he was an ulcer. Uh, you are what you eat. Hey. I wonder how the Romanians feel with the constant changing constitutions. Like, do they have to relearn it every year in school? Uh, no, I feel like... Uh, they have to relearn it, like, every couple of days anyways, you know, and that's just every citizen. So to have it change is like, okay, now I just repeat the words that I'm forced to say. Like, it doesn't matter, nothing really changes, I just, the only thing that changes is the words I have to say to prove that I'm not some secret American espionage agent. Imagine, though, like, if they had, like, a schoolhouse rock type thing, <laughs> how much money the schoolhouse rock would make, because every year they'd make a new, like, preamble music. Preamble music? Preamble song. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Provide oh, I'm just a written confession. Defense. Yeah, I'm just a written confession, and I'm sitting here in uh, the basement of a gulag. Well, well. <laughs> now get, uh, get better than Ezra to cover that. Got yourself a stew. <laughs> uh, George, George Udej commissioned the mining town of Stay to be renamed... <laughs> <laughs> Leave? <laughs> uh, to be renamed... Dr. Petru Groza, in his memory. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I live in Dr. Petru Groza. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what uh, let it be known that 
uh, stay had nothing to do with Groza. He'd never been there. He'd never visited. It didn't matter. He, it's it, 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 perfect example of Stalinism. Like, hey, uh, this has nothing to do with anything, but uh, this is new. Like, this is the new reality for just this small group of people. Yeah, sure, whatever, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just let me mind my fucking coal. Yeah, <laughs> let me mind my coal and my fucking spuds and please don't kill me i'll mind my coal and my business <laughs> mining your coal and minding your business that's uh that's uh that's, that's a their stay that's their town slogan. motto yep town slogan yeah you know like peterborough a good place, good place to, to live. live stay mine your coal and mind your business <laughs> uh stay remained known as dr petrugoza until the Romanian Revolution of December 1989, when the town regained its agency, and then the hastily carved statues of Groza were ceremoniously torn down. Uh, but you could buy one on eBay if you look hard enough. Side note, um, that Lenin statue is still in Seattle. Ooh, hot diggity damn. Checked the other day. I got, we gotta stick some big old juicy ass dildos on top of that. Mmm. Yeah. That's, um, uh, yeah, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, there's this neighborhood north of Seattle. Well, it's in, it's a part of Seattle. It's a... It's a barrio. Yeah, it's a, it's a borough. Area. Um, uh, <sighs> north of downtown. Uh, inside the, this, like, uh, uh, small cellar restaurant that makes, uh, dough balls. Pierogies? Pierogies. And outside is a massive iron... <laughs> statue of Vladimir Lenin and it was an actual statue of Vladimir Lenin carved on commission for the USSR but then when they crumbled in late 91 <laughs> it had nowhere to go so it was sold very cheap to this guy who just had it shipped over to America and then he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna donate it to the to this town," and so they just put it on a corner. And it's just it's there. It's so funny. It's so random. Like we were we were looking for this pierogi place because I because side note, if you have not tried pierogies, they're they're bob bananas. They're so yeah. good. If you're if you're a Polish person who somehow survived all you know Hitler and Stalin, uh, you gotta taste some of those pierogies. There's Seattle actually has a really good uh, amount of Russian food because there's also proshki proshki. Oh yeah, which is yeah, no, fucking no. awesome. Yeah. But anyway, but uh, anyway, so we're looking for this pierogi place, and we're like just walking around, and then we see that this giant statue of fucking Lenin. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. Um, sorry, but yeah, we see this giant statue of Lenin, and we're like, "What the fuck is that real?" And then Chris did a little research, and we're like. What the fuck? Yeah, it's amazing. It's... Like you can, it's not like cordoned off or anything. You can. We climbed it, we sat on it, took pictures with it. A bunch yeah. of there was. I mentioned dildos at the beginning because at the time there was a giant dildo, suction cupped to the top of his head, and it was <laughs> fucking hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really funny because I mean like, you know. People are, I'm sure that there's somebody somewhere that's like, oh, Lenin's memory will live on. And it's like, yeah, yeah with a dildo sucked into his head in a fucking random borough of Seattle. Which, yeah. side note, by the way, I always forget that 
burrow is the English word. I only remember the Spanish word. Burrow. You're funny. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, she's a half Mexican and full-on Hispanic. Thank you. I appreciate that. Other people beg to differ. But that's a sensitive topic. Sensitive topic. Uh, new Prime Minister and still General Secretary George Giorgio Dej was more Stalinist than ever, and more than any of his peers. And now he was basically a little dictator of his own, save for his allegiance to the big mustache himself. Oh, but, but, oh, oh, oh what's that? Oh, it's the spring of 1953 and Stalin is dead? Dead? Ah, oh, gee, that was fucking fast. And in strolled Nikita Khrushchev, suggesting we backpedal a bit from peak Stalinism and renounce the ways of old. Oh, oh, how grumbly Georgie Porgy Georgie Udej got. A more attentive Soviet daddy would mean less authority of his own. And sure enough, that was the case. Call me... <laughs> Call me Soviet daddy. <laughs> I'm your Soviet daddy. You're my Soviet daddy. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, unless he sounds like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Soviet high command wanted Romania to be the Eastern Bloc's breadbasket. Just like Ukraine was, hence the Holodomor. But, you know, back earlier when we were talking about that. Uh, becoming the Eastern Bloc's breadbasket would mean forcing Georgiou Dej to redistribute Romania's resources away from the old labor camps and industrial projects to new machine works factories and agricultural initiatives. At the time, close to 90% of Romania's gross domestic product went straight to the USSR. Kind of like how the ants were first forced to provide the majority of their harvest to the grasshoppers in Pixar's 1998 film A Bug's Life which I could make the argument was analogous to the anti-communist revolutions of 1989, but it won't bore you with that. It's a personal thing. We should do like a like a mini episode or something. Like a, like oh, a yeah. We're going to get into minute. the like the, <laughs> the complex of the two, like the uh, 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 yes. two yep. studios copying each other, the ants and the, and then go into like the lore and the allegories. Dennis Hopper. We'll do. We'll. Okay. Uh, in an article of England's The Times newspaper, dated August 29th of 1953, it was suggested that Romania could, for instance, obtain higher prices on the world market for much of what she is forced to export to Russia, foodstuffs included, in return for machinery and aid. What they were implying, and what Georgi Udej was thinking, was that if Romania became more independent more nationalist, with greater autarky, greater agency, then Romania could open trade to the West, which would increase profits, increase standard of living, and increase Georgiou Dej's hold on power. On December 23, 1955, Georgiou Dej delivered a five-hour-long speech to the Second Party Congress, in which he argued for the pursuit of Romania's own interests. Weeks later, he dispatched his American ambassador to meet with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and President Dwight D. Eisenhower to expand their economic relationship. And within a year, almost 25% of Romania's exports were going to the United States. New profits helped increase industrialization, and although 15% of the population left agriculture for factory work, agricultural productivity still nearly doubled. 
While Georgiou Odege's reasons were purely selfish, he actually endeared Romania to the West by becoming the first Eastern Bloc state to trade across the Atlantic, which had the added benefit of Western media relaxing their critiques of the past decades crimes against humanity, and the continued oppression of undesirables in favor of the more front-page-friendly de-Stalinization efforts, which were as close to heroism in the West as the Soviet stooge could get. After Anna Pauker was purged from the party, Georgi Udej brought his protege Nikolai Ceausescu into the Central Committee, which was the Communist Party's version of Congress, which had the real legislative power and fed intended terms and decrees to their quote-unquote veiled democracy lessers at the Presidium. Kind of like how super PACs and the chairs of the Democrat or Republican Party uh, decide what congresspersons are going to make into bills and whatnot. Actually, mm. better, it's more like in America, we're a corporatocracy, it's like when big oil and investment groups, hedge funds, banks, dirty corporate big boys tell congresspersons what to do <laughs> and pay them for it. Ah. And then we get bills that, oh, lo and behold, why, why, wow, all the, all the stuff that Congress is passing plays right into the hands of everyone who's not a person. That's a tangent for another time. <laughs> I'm upset. Going back for a moment, I meant to say this earlier. Poker? I hardly know her. That is a great joke, and I am not going to edit it so that it appears in a more topical area. I'm going to leave it exactly where you said it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a great joke. I'm also going to put in a... Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, from there, Ceausescu quickly rose to the Politburo, the chorus of elites that made the big and dire decisions in the Central Committee. So, like, the in-group's in-group. In the Politburo, he became the second-in-command after Georgiou Udege. However, to deflate his own image as all-powerful in order to appear more appealing to his new friends in the West, Georgiou Udege resigned his post as General Secretary in April 1954 in favor of solely the Prime Ministership, which was the more democratic of the two roles. In his stead, Georgiou Udege appointed Georgie Apostle. Their names are all the same. Yeah. It makes it very confusing. Georgie Apostle, the new general secretary, uh, looked like Clemenza from The Godfather, as huh. portrayed by Richard S. Castellano. Only if Clemenza had eaten a few less cannolis and, instead of mob enforcement, became a certified public accountant. You mentioned cannolis. I'm still on cream puffs. I'm thinking dessert. Right now? At some point. Why did the crap away? Uh, Georgie Apostle was born poor in 1913. George the Apostle? Nope. He worked, <laughs> he worked his way into an apprenticeship at the Kail Farat Roman, a major railway company at the time. And he got work at a steel track factory in Kalati. One day in 1932, a railway unionist named Georgie Georgie Udej came around the foundry preaching the good word of communism. Georgie Apostle loved the tune and joined the party two years later, becoming Georgie Udej's go-to guy in Galat. He was arrested a number of times at political protests, and in 1937 he was shipped off to Dovstanna prison, 
then to Tarkajiu, when Antonescu took office, where he shared the same cell block as his pseudo-boss, Georgi Udej, and his pseudo-boss's new protege, Nikolai Ceausescu, who Apostle saw as a potential threat, particularly since Ceausescu played the enforcer of Georgi Udej's self-criticism sessions. Little do they know, he's gonna have a downfall. Hey, I see what you're doing. <laughs> After escaping Targujiu in August 1944, Georgi Apostol fled underground with his peers and helped build the foundation of the Soviet bureaucracy, for which he was rewarded with appointments to the Central Committee in 1945 and the Politburo in 1948. He was president of the Presidium for three short stints, then named Minister of Agriculture in 1953 after Khrushchev ordered the breadbasket initiatives to begin. And while Apostle had his glimmer of esteem uh, as an important minister, he still had to suffer through the explosive rise of his intellectual lesser, Nikolai Ceausescu, who simply yassered his way into the Politburo in under a year. Bam. Apostle's over here like, I I'm doing the slog, boy. Take a decade to get to this stage. And Ceausescu's just like, I'll Fuck on your titties if you... So Ceausescu's nose is, like, as brown as mud. Yo, and he got a big old nose. Oh, We're talking that? bigger than my nose. That's why his Maybe nose is that brown. Maybe 60% larger than my nose. It's a jump. What the f Holy shit. Yeah. Not that your nose is, like, that big, hey. but, like... Like I said a long time ago, he's like, uh, he's like Eugene from Hey Arnold if he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. When Georgi Udej said he was going to drop the general secretary gig and that he wanted Apostle to take the mantle, Apostle felt like he'd finally won out over his thick-lipped youngblood rival. But all wasn't as it appeared. Georgi Udej still held all the power, and the general secretary position came with three tagalongs, including Nikolai Ceausescu, in the form of a collective secretariat where Apostle was just the top dog in a four-man dog pack, all attached to the same leash held by George Udej. And Apostle's pseudo-reign was even less meaningful when, after a year and a half, George Udej took the general secretary position back, leaving Apostle with no role outside of the Politburo. George Udej gave the prime ministership to Chrome Dome Chivustuaika, who looked like a cross between a general store owner and Peter Sellers' Dr. Strangelove, with the glasses and everything. Chivu Stoeka had been at Tarkuju with the other chief prison communists. His six-year reign as Prime Minister of Romania was purely superficial. He had no authority and no input, acting only as a figurehead to hide Giorgio Dej's omnipotence. Years later, during the Ceausescu era, Stivu Stoeka would swallow the barrel of a hunting rifle in what was deemed a suicide. That seems deadly. That is a fair <laughs> assessment, Blakely. You know, you really, you got, what was it? You, I the, got the good brain. Yeah. <laughs> got dog brain. <laughs> what was you want to be a uh, pathologist? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to presume that the gun in the mouth was what killed him. <laughs> yes, Bleebly. <laughs> how do you how do you think he died? I'm gonna assume it's the the knife in his back. <laughs> What's that from? Oh shit, I can't remember. I felt I feel like it was a cartoon, but 
like Family Guy or something, but I don't actually. But then I'm like, no, I think it was like a. Stubbly. <laughs> oh, hey, be careful. It's real stubbly. <gasps> stubbly. Hey. What's he doing? Stubbly. <gasps> oh, wow, wow. Pyramids of Giza. Uh, in October 1956, Poland's Communist Party leadership refused to submit to replacement by Soviet determination, even under threat of military intervention. That same month, in Hungary, deposed Prime Minister Imre Nagy led a popular uprising against his former benefactors, the oppressive Hungarian People's Republic and their iron-fisted Mama Daddy, the Soviet Union. The student-born movement flew their nation's flag only with the central communist emblem cut out. And uh, it's funny because we'll see something soon. We'll see something very similar down the road. Uh, for two weeks, the movement raged in the streets of Budapest, posing the greatest threat to the Soviet Union since the exorcism of the Wehrmacht in 1945. Khrushchev stomped the uprising out with over a thousand tanks and 32,000 troops but not before inspiring students in Romania to duplicate the effort in Bucharest, Cluj, and Timosora, calling for more freedom and less oppression. Too much to ask for, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck millennials, am I right? <laughs> Georgi Udej reacted fast with the unscrupulous arrests of anybody and everybody who appeared to be protesting, or openly upset in any way, especially if they were Hungarian, or even if they looked Hungarian. There were a lot of arrests. If their stomachs growled, they were arrested. Because they, they were, were Hungarian. Hungarian. I get it. <laughs> oh, they get uh, they get uh, so full on that turkey that their stomachs start to Bulgaria. Oh my god, I fucking hate us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, there was a, there were a lot of arrests, thousands of arrests. Georgi Udej called on Moscow for a boost in military resources, which he then amounted on the Hungarian border, and when the uprising was quelled, the Romanian army caught the fleeing former Prime Minister Imre Nagy and arrested him, interrogated him, released him to the new Soviet leadership in Hungary, where he was brought back to Budapest, tried for insurrection, and executed. Saw that coming. Yeah. I'm sure he did too. <laughs> In the late 1950s, Mao Zedong's communist China had a falling out with Nikita Khrushchev's Soviet Union, which had adopted and nursed it into the communist powerhouse it uh, still is today, Did even you? after all these years. That we have the same birthday? Shut up. Me. When Mao split from his Soviet parentage, the Eastern Bloc was supposed to denounce him and make enemies, which most did, but Georgi Udej uh, did not. While Mao had few friends outside those in North Korea and Southeast Asia, he had one in Romania. Georgi Udej allowed his censors to report on the Soviet criticisms that were coming out of China, and in return Chinese media reported on Romania's historical beefs with Russia, even calling the loss of Bessarabia an iconic representation of the evils of Russian imperialism. Georgi Udej and Mao Zedong became sort of like kindred spirits, and that friendship extended to Georgi Udej's closest allies, first and foremost, Nikolai Ceausescu. But we're not quite there yet. <laughs> Hold up. We'll get there. Uh, In seven episodes. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> 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 
George Udej's distancing from Khrushchev began with his economic relationship with the West and worsened with his refusal to disown Mao Zedong, but it really escalated when he endorsed the publication of Karl Marx's Russophobic literature in 1964. George Udej then issued a statement, screaming of nationalism, asserting a new path of independence, saying, There does not and cannot exist a parent party and a son party, or a superior party and subordinate parties. When Khrushchev was dethroned by his peers for allowing the Eastern Bloc to consider their own identities and for trying to make nice with the West, he was replaced with Leonid Brezhnev, a careless in all the senses of the word, hardline post-Stalin Stalinist, who looked like if Dan Aykroyd fucked a warthog. Giorgio Dej brought his umbrage about the still-in-country NKVD to Brezhnev and pressed it until the new Soviet leader pulled his secret police out of Romania, a first for the Eastern Bloc states. Good for them. Yep. Giorgio <sighs> Dej had been achieving every step towards independence that he had laid out for himself. He was becoming the dictator he always dreamed of being, and the groundwork was nearly completely laid for this to become permanent. And then, on March 19th, 1965, George Giorgio Dej died of lung cancer. All these people. I see pictures of people. Pictures of people. 33 foreign dignitaries attended his funeral, about a third of which came from Western nations. Giorgio Dej hadn't left a clear successor, though Giorgio Apostol was adamant that Giorgio Dej had asked him personally to take over, which, frankly, I could believe. But the current prime minister, John Georgie Maurer, who looked like a Sicilian guppy. Fucking Georgie, man. Yeah. It's a requirement. Oh, actually, please do look up his picture, because when I say he looked like a Sicilian guppy, uh, I mean it. Uh, that's spelled John, like John without the H. Georgie, like all the other Georgies in this stupid fucking podcast. Maurer, like M-A-U-R-E-R. Wait, how are you spelling Georgie? Uh, G-H-E-O-R-G-H-E. Thank you. Oh, Show me! Sicilian copy! Bing! I don't know which one's him. But that first picture, Michael of Romania, was really handsome. Wait, Prince Michael? The guy who didn't do shit? Yeah. He was very handsome. Yeah. It's funny because I, like forgot he had a place of power because he didn't do anything (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah he kind of looks like he could be um god what's his name (sighs) you saying i'm funny joe joe pesci yeah joe pesci's grandfather huh yeah oh yeah it could be related to Joe Pesci. It's good. Yeah. Uh, Maurer, the current prime minister, had a beef against Georgie Apostol for the same reason that Georgie Apostol had beef with Nicolae Ceausescu. Old resentments born from inferiority by comparison in the eyes of their leader. John Georgie Maurer and his buddy, Emil Bodnaros, who was uh, Communist Romania's first minister of war, long since retired but still well-respected, 
They waged a war of words in the immediate hours after Georgiou Dej's death, meant to discredit Georgie Apostle and promote Maurer himself as the rightful heir, leading to three days of violent infighting. Eventually, however, a compromise was made, found in Georgiou Dej's longtime strongman, the fish-lipped yes-man Nikolai Ceausescu. <laughs> and on March 22, 1965, Nicolae Ceausescu was named the General Secretary of the rechristened Romanian Communist Party. And that is when everything somehow got even worse. Oh, God. As for Georgi Apostle, he grew to loathe Ceausescu, not only as a person, but for all the policies he enacted thereafter, which Apostle believed was contrary to the democratic socialism, quote-unquote democratic socialism, of his predecessor, Georgiou Desch, whom he still respected even in death. Ceausescu, in turn, went on a virulent bent and sought Apostle's elimination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for he the really record... He does have fish lips. Yes. He is a fish-lipped little bitch. <sighs> and I want... I, if he were not dead... I would beat his face in with a frying pan. And not a good frying pan. Like the one with all the crust on it that you got from, like, your aunt when you went to college. Well, sometimes, I mean, like, that's called seasoning. Yeah, when the Teflon's flaking off and, like... Oh, oh, gotcha. I thought you meant, like, a like a skillet. Oh, no. He was handsome when he was younger, though. And it makes me, like, feel sad because I keep looking at all these people who were handsome when they were young, like Stalin. Ooh, babe. But, um... But, like, then they, like, get older and they're, like, a lot less attractive. And I'm like, oh, God, that's my future. But look at him when he was younger. He was very handsome. Kind of looks like Anthony. Oh, my God. My sister's going to marry a fish-lipped yes man. (laughs) Yeah, his lips uh, really fished out with age. They really did. Oh, God. He looks like a fucking soft fart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to the surprise of many, Emil Bodnaraus, who had cock-blocked Apostle's inheritance of the premiership, advised Apostle of the situation that Ceausescu was going to have him killed, recommending that Apostle shut his trap and take a diplomatic role overseas, far enough away that his existence would no longer irk Ceausescu. So Apostle left Romania for over 20 years, becoming the ambassador to Argentina, then Uruguay, in Brazil until 1988 when he returned to Romania with a vengeance. Is that the year that Ceausescu has his downfall? Um, no. At the height of Ceausescu's reign and at the age of 75, Apostle organized a literary hit squad of himself and five other elders from the Georgiou Dej days. Yeah, that's right. You got the old gang back together for one last job. <laughs> one last jobber. One last, last jobber. Jobber. I, I'm imagining this scene. I'm sorry. I know you haven't explained it yet, but I'm imagining like all these like older people getting together, and it like I don't know if you've seen that episode of. The Powerpuff Girls, where there used to be like this, it was essentially like Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy before SpongeBob did it. Um, 
And so it's like, but they were like fighting and then they like came back together. But then there was like a bunch of old people like fighting each other and they were all slow and it was like. That's very familiar, but I can't, I can't. I'll have to look it up for you later. My hip! <laughs> I think it's like uh, if you mix that movie that nobody saw, not even old people, of uh, Christopher Walken, Alan Arkin, and uh, uh, Morgan Freeman doing like old man shenanigans, but you mix that with uh, the Steven Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven. A bunch of geriatric boys coming together to do some real sharp action. My hip! My hip! Uh, the Six Red Elders wrote an open letter decrying the Ceausescu regime, and they published it in March of 1989 over the airwaves of Radio Free Europe. Which sounds like a slogan, but it's the name of the radio station network. Are you serious? What? Radio the Free name Europe? of the radio station is Radio Free Europe? Yeah, it's like, I get what they're doing because it's like oh anyone in europe can listen to it why don't they but say i would have rearranged the free words radio something. europe or something yeah yeah european free radio maybe yeah i don't not, know i don't know i'm not I, 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 i'm judging yeah i'm judging uh naturally ceausescu was pissed and he had apostle and his five brocachonis placed under house arrest and interrogated uh incessantly uh at at end uh hoping that they'd confess to being Soviet spies and saboteurs. None of the six ever shelled out the confession that Ceausescu was hoping for, and their open letter helped usher in the uprising that erupted on December 21st, later that year, during one of Ceausescu's many wooden speeches. The subsequent revolution validated Apostle's name, and yet it seemed post-1989, post-Ceausescu, post-communism, Romania was even more to his distaste, as he became outspokenly disappointed with the loss of his and his peers' hard work. And he'd remain a grumpy old coot for two decades more until his death on August 21st, 2010, at the age of 19... At the, at the, the age of 97. Wow! Yeah, some of these guys lived a little too long. Evil never dies. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the revolution hasn't happened yet. It's 1965, remember? Nikolai Ceausescu has just been crowned general secretary uh, only yesterday. And he's just announced that Romania is no longer a quote-unquote people's democracy. Which is that old breed of communism that allows for a social hierarchy. And theoretically, at least, diverse identities. Can't have none of that. China was declared a uh, people's democracy during its communist revolution in 1949, becoming the People's Republic of China. And they exported this idea to the Viet Cong in North Vietnam, the Path at Lao in Laos, and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, all of whom eventually gained power, and most of whom retain it today. China itself quickly spiraled under Chairman Mao Zedong. I know. Same birthday. Don't yeah. Give me, don't give me that look. Almost uh, 100 years apart. Uh, into what he called a people's democratic dictatorship, which isn't a thing. Uh, oxymoron. Uh, people's democratic dictatorship had a steeper social hierarchy that is flatter on the bottom and did not allow diverse identities, thus being more of a totalitarian socialist state as Russia was under Stalin. 
Mao had ascended into power in a similar manner, ordering the execution of nearly two million landlords and collectivizing their properties. The peasant population nearly doubled to 900 million within 30 years, thanks to Mao's have a baby for Mao law. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and now look at China. Yeah. Way too many people that they all live in, like, cubes and they're crying because they, like, there's, you know, no girls and all the boys are like, who do I put my seed in? Anyway, to make room for a new generation of properly educated children, Mao launched the Great Leap Forward reform initiative, which saw the reallocation of resources from agriculture to industry, resulting in the starvation deaths of somewhere between 20 and 45 million people. Jesus Christ. 45 million. 45 million people. Yeah, and even if you go on China's estimate, like the super low ball, low, 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 20 million? Jesus. Yeah, that's... Great Reap Forward. I cannot great leap forward more like murder yes big murder big murder oh genocide yeah should we rename this podcast genocide <laughs> genocide a podcast <coughs> five years later mao launched another reform initiative called the cultural revolution which it sounds like Beatlemania, but really, it, it saw propaganda become truth. Uh, social hierarchies were dismantled, and millions of non-believers were executed. So Shut the non-believer! <laughs> Shut... Execute him. Kind of like Beatlemania. I, I don't... I wouldn't compare it to Beatlemania. I don't know. It's uh, no. Sort of. No? I mean, like... I feel like there could be similarities, but I feel like... Remember um, when John Lennon chopped off all those kids' heads? No. So that's the thing. That's where it gets different. Yeah, what am I thinking Because Ringo Starr chopped off all those oh, kids' heads. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, and then he became the narrator of uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah. That guy's all over the place. He's just, you know, he's a little crazy, that Ringo, but he's a good guy. Uh, when Ceausescu took power, he was taking a cue from his old friend Mao Zedong when he rechristened Romania as a quote-unquote socialist republic, a vague term for a single-party state of citizen workers united in a common cause, upholding the tenets of socialism as easy as a cul-de-sac upholds communalism, just on a grander scale. Did you know that Mao Zedong and I have the same pretension? If you weren't pregnant with my child, I would beat you into oblivion so hard that uh, I would become the poster boy for domestic abuse. I keep rubbing my belly because it's so fun to rub. So sorry, guys, if you can hear a rubbing sound in the background. I'm not going to stop rubbing my belly. Hashtag fun to rub. Hashtag <laughs> fun to rub. Babies. Duh. They're fun to rub. I know we should not. Oh, <laughs> don't take it there. Don't take it that way. <laughs> uh... Ceausescu's Socialist Republic is built on a flat hierarchy with a nominal ruling committee whose decisions are based on popular or utilitarian decision rather than the decision of a single executor, be it president or tyrant, nor by oligarchy such as the committees of 20th century communist states or the corporations of contemporary capitalist states, nor by meritocracy which is the reign of good-hearted experts in their appropriate fields as exemplified in the ideal albeit rarely achieved, well-designed American executive branch, which Jimmy Carter had attempted to create 
1976, only to be cock-blocked by both the Republicans and Democrats of Congress because he wasn't appointing pedophilic senators or bought-out representatives to cabinet positions. But <laughs> that's a story for another day. Well, I want to really, meet Jimmy Carter. I want to meet Jimmy Carter, too. He's still alive, and he seems like a really nice guy. He, he had so much potential. Did you say oligarchy? Yes. Yay! Remember, I think it was, like, episode two, I think? I don't know. I kept saying oligarchy. Oh, it's God, oligarchy. I remember that. Yay, oligarchy. I learned four cup words in world history. I really want to tell the story of Jimmy Carter someday. But that would require telling the entire history of the United States, and I'm not prepared to do that right now. Oh, you know, you could uh, shorten it, because the podcast is called Long Story Short. I know. I'm turning a long story short, and the long story is very long. So just have a short long podcast yeah. is. I'm sure I have faith in you. You could do it. Oh. Yeah. If you're gonna do oh. Jimmy Carter, I know you're gonna make it long. So we're gonna shorten that bad boy up. Uh, we're gonna talk about his NSA advisor. You're gonna get it in an hour. No. <laughs> no. Fine. Then a three part series. Max. Okay. Okay. For Carter. For Carter. Okay. Uh. Compromise, people. This is how a marriage works. <laughs> or I'm going to take a, a play out of Ceausescu's book and just say, uh, I decide how long the Jimmy Carter series is going to be. It's going to be 40 episodes. We're going to have eight of them just on the peanut farm years. Peanuts! I will fucking kill you. While Ceausescu called it a quote-unquote socialist republic, note that true socialism has not truly been fulfilled. Uh, though countries like India, Nicaragua, Tanzania, and Algeria continue to try. And countries like Sweden and Canada implement socialist tenets in their framework. As difficult because true socialism is the decapitalized midway point between wage slavery and Karl Marx's end goal expectation for global civilization. And though the USA has been trying desperately to attain the global part especially in the reigns of Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and Bill Clinton. For the sake of power, the USA has refused, if not simply ignored, the civilization part of global civilization, preferring instead to play parent or boss rather than peer or colleague to the other nations of the world. If there was any ideological inspiration for Ceausescu to change Romania to a socialist republic, it had nothing to do with achieving socialism and everything to do with isolating Romania from the rest of the Soviet Union. And all that shit I said about Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and Bill Clinton, all that is in that series I was talking about with the Jimmy Carter. We'll get there. I'm screaming in my body. He just flashed me, guys. Those tits are delicious. Delish tits. Delish tits. But, again, it's 1965, and Ceausescu wants to spread his wings. He has spent 40 years being the man who follows orders, and now he has, in his opinion, earned the right to be the one that gives the orders. And you better be damn sure he's gonna give them. We'll get into the hows and whys of Ceausescu's avarice in the next episode, the beginning of part 5 of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. As for this episode, though, we've reached a logical conclusion, but the story will explode into life in the next episode. Literally, we're going to start with a population boom, like the kind that Mao Zedong poorly managed in the 50s. 
If you're interested in reading more about breeding programs, there's an article about the Nazis super baby breeding program uh, where they tried to breed super babies to populate their new lands after pursuing Lebensraum. And fun fact, the blonde chick from ABBA was one of those super babies. Super baby. Super baby. Um, Mao Zedong and I. Uh, I'll, I'll link to that article in the description, uh, and if you are interested in more like this podcast, but you enjoy reading like a little nerd, go check out openarticle.xyz, openarticle.xyz, for more. Excuse me. There's a great series on cheese that isn't finished, and a far greater series on Simon and Garfunkel, if you're interested in learning about things that are important. And feel some emotions. Listen to some great music. Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. You're shaking my confidence, baby. Oh, Oh, Cecilia, I'm down on my knees. I'm begging you please to come home. To come home. Ho, 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 ho. We hope you enjoyed listening to our rootin' and tootin'. Really tootin'. And our big breathy wins. Our rootin' tootin' Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Preface. <laughs> oh, this is Chris. Oh, I I wish your cousin's name wasn't Celia because, like, I really like the name Cecilia. Yeah, I think about that frequently. Damn it, Celia. Damn it, Annie. But, but we got the Rosie coming. Got Rosie. Maybe a future Lillian. Lillian. Got another baby girl, Christopher. Oh, I'm going to be a good boy. Can people maybe stop a, uh, maybe a Maybe a Ulysses Tecumseh? Nope. Oh, That's not fucking happening. It. Ulysses, what? strong name from a strong man. Tecumseh, know. not only the prophet Tecumseh, nope. who will cover in a podcast of energy. Nope, nope. William Tecumseh Sherman. I got a text asking if I'm going to have a baby shower, and I wish people would stop asking me that, because I'm not the one who plans that shit. You should reply, I don't uh, know. yes, when are you going to hop on that? Yeah. And then it's I'll like get a like woman, five baby showers. A guy doesn't plan his own bachelor's party. If he did, he'd just be like, all of y'all buy me cocaine. Because I'm like, am I supposed to be... I'm going to make that my Facebook status, and I'll ask around. Am I supposed to be planning my own baby shower? Because people keep asking me. Jim Morrison, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly. Edem, Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding. Janis Joplin, T-Rex, Elvis Disparu, Brian Jones Jim Morrison Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly Edem, Jimi Hendrix Otis Redding Janis Joplin, T-Rex Elvis Despair